We're going to be talking about the light of humanity tonight, obviously being Christmas time, we'll be discussing the birth of Jesus a bit, but not in the traditional sense. We're going to be looking at some kind of non-traditional passages for this time of year, but they speak directly to, as does the entire Bible, to the amazing hope that we have in Jesus. And so our our main passages tonight are going to be in John's gospel. We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, and also chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. But before we get there this evening, uh, we're going to visit a couple other places. And one of them, and the first one, is going to be Isaiah chapter 7. So if you found your way to John, good for you. You can hold your spot and you can find your way to Isaiah chapter 7. And one of the things that really struck me as we've been studying through Isaiah was the fact that uh, the gospel is not always good news to people. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's something that growing up as a Christian, I grew up in the church. I gave my life to the Lord when I was eight years old and And so I really don't have a place in my mind for a time in which I didn't trust the Lord. And for some of you, that's your story as well. There are others in this room, I'm sure, that came to the Lord later in life. And so maybe you can connect better with this. But for me, it really hit me like a ton of bricks that some people are really upset about the good news. Like it's not good news to them. It's actually bad news that God is with them and knows what they're doing. (laughs) You know, that's not comforting to them. And there are uh, a couple of kings we're going to look at. Ahaz is one of them that show us uh, that that is the case, case with uh, some people. But I wanted to start off with these two verses. These are from the main text we're going to be looking at this evening. And you see here both the good news and the bad news. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that is the most famous verse in the entire Bible and for good reason. It is a wonderful verse that carries with it a great hope and truth of what we have in Jesus. But then just a few verses after that, you have verse 19, which says, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so the thing that has really struck me is that the good news, euangelion is the Greek word, and it literally means good news, is not always good news to people. And sometimes it's in judgment, and that's exactly what we see in the prophecy of Emmanuel in uh, Isaiah chapter 7. And so the first king, like I said, we're going to look at is King Ahaz. And I'll read through verses 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. A little bit of background, if you don't remember. Now it's been a few weeks since we were in chapter 7. So there are some threats to the north that King Ahaz is quite concerned about. There's a coalition of uh, countries and kings that have come against him, both the northern kingdom of Israel and also uh, 
Edom have joined together and they want to, they're pressuring him to join this alliance against Assyria. And uh, God is telling him, you don't need to worry about them and you don't need to worry about Assyria. You just need to trust me. That's, that's the message to Ahaz. And Ahaz is like, well, I already have my own plan and I'm going to pick the winning team. And so I want to partner with Assyria and they can take care of these two guys that are bullying me at the moment. Um, and in a worldly sense, that would have made a lot of, lot of good sense. It really would have. You know, Assyria was the superpower at the time. They were the people to have on your side if you were thinking in a worldly context. But Yahweh said, no, you need to trust me. And that was the big thing put before Ahaz. Are you going to trust me or are you going to trust in the power of man? And Ahaz, unfortunately, had already made up his mind. And so... Isaiah is speaking to him and he says, ask for a sign, any sign. It's like the most incredible offer that you've ever read in the Bible. God says, I will do anything to prove this to you. (laughs) Anything, just name it. I'll do it. And Ahaz says, oh no, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David. It is too little for you to weary men that you will weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So he says, you don't want a sign? Too bad? You're getting one anyway. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days that have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah. That's a reference to the civil war. So he said, this is going to be worse than your civil war. And we can kind of relate to that as a country. We had a civil war, and that was still today the most devastating conflict in American history. Why? Because everyone who died was an American, right? So it had huge, drastic effects to a country. Civil wars do, and he says, this is going to be worse than that. It's going to be really bad. Why? Because Assyria is coming. So what I want to point out from this passage is that there was this great message of hope. God's got your back. Just trust him and he'll give you a sign. And instead of trusting in Yahweh, when people choose not to trust in Yahweh, then the sign of Emmanuel, which we know is Jesus, is no longer a comfort but a judgment. And that's kind of a crazy thing to realize. That this beautiful thing that we rejoice in as God's people is something that other people are literally mad about. And for me, that has just really boggled my mind. And another king that we see that clearly with, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, is King Herod. So in Matthew's gospel, we have this account that tells us a very interesting um, 
contrast between two different uh, people. You've got the magi or the wise men who are these foreigners, Gentiles, who come to worship the King Jesus. And then you have King Herod who wants to do the direct opposite. He wants to murder the baby Jesus, okay? So very drastic, different things. And, and uh, it's meant to be shown that way that we would see how polar opposite these two responses are to Jesus. Starting in verse 1, I'll, I'll read through 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. That we know was a lie. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That is like the most emphatic way in Greek to say that they were super excited. <laughs> yeah, like, and, uh, and we know that this had been a long journey for them. Like they had, they had studied the stars, they had heard about the prophecies, and they had journeyed all the way and we don't know from where exactly, but I'll mention that here in a minute when I talk about who they are. But they, this would have been a long journey, and they're finally there, and they're finally, literally, at the treasure that they've been seeking. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So let me tell you a little bit about Herod. This is Herod the Great, okay? And what he was was a great tyrant. That's who Herod the Great was. He was born in uh, 73 BC, and he was not even Jewish. I don't know if you realize that or not, but uh, the Herods were not Jewish. They were uh, Indomian, so they came from the, king, the kingdom of Edom, and uh, so they were not Jewish, and even though they held the title, in the essence, of king of the Jews, uh, they were put in place by Rome. So Rome had taken over much of the known world at this time, and so they were friendly to Rome. Rome put them in, in power over this region, which involved uh, Jerusalem in Israel, and so 
That's why he's the king of the Jews at the time, this guy, Herod the Great. But he was not a good guy. He was well known for his paranoia and jealousy. He murdered his wife and two of his sons uh, because he thought that they might try to supplant him in some way. Um, and upon his death, he had ordered that 2,000 Jewish leaders be crucified so the nation would mourn. Thankfully, that was not carried out. <laughs> but he was not a good guy. He was a really bad guy, and uh, his deeds were indeed evil, and that is why he found the good news of the king of the Jews being born to be really bad news. He was not happy. And it says there in verse 3 that he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And the reason why it says all Jerusalem with him was because they were like, oh, great. Herod's upset. What's going to happen now? Okay? So when you have a complete lunatic that is in charge, uh, you are really concerned when they are flying off the handle, right? So all of Jerusalem was troubled because King Herod was a greatly troubled person. So the Magi, on the other hand, are polar opposite in their response. And it's really interesting because they also are not Jewish. They are Gentiles. Um, and they, we don't know exactly where they came from. There's four basic possibilities, either Arabia, Babylon, Persia, or Egypt. Um, the kind of the, the strong census is uh, Persia because Persia was known for... Um, their astrology, and these were obviously astrologers. They studied the stars, okay? Um, and when you, when you think of the Magi, I want you to think of priest slash magician slash astrologer, okay? That's kind of what they were. They served kind of a priestly function. Um, they did incantations. Yeah, they were from the Gentile culture. But these Magi obviously knew something about the scriptures. And all four of those regions had a heavy Jewish population because of the different deportations that had happened. And so there were Jews in those areas, and most certainly these were Magi who had come to faith in Yahweh and were seeking the Messiah to worship him. And so that's what they do. They come to worship him. So where where is the king so that we may worship him? That is the big question they have. And on the flip side, you have Herod who says, where is the king so I can kill him? <laughs> okay? Those are the, the two different polar responses here between these two individuals. Well, the group of individuals, the Magi and King Herod. And when they come, it says that they worshiped him and they worshiped him by opening their treasures by opening their treasures. They took what was valuable to the world and what was valuable to them, and they gave it to Jesus. And by the way, um, that is how we worship in a big way, is by giving the Lord what is valuable to us. If he is your ultimate treasure, then he is worthy of the things that are valuable to you. So, turn with me now to John's gospel. 
I'm going to start in John chapter 3. And I love this passage because verse 16 takes all of the airtime, and yet there's so much good stuff right after it. And I'm not down on John 3.16, obviously. I think it's a fantastic verse. But there are really cool things that Jesus says right after it. So, for God so loved the world. That's the, the big idea here through this section, that God so loved the world. And we see God's love most clearly displayed in Jesus Christ. That's how we know that God loves us, is Jesus. By the way, if you ever question whether or not God loves you, what you do is you remember Jesus. And you go, oh, that's right. Despite my circumstances, despite the difficulties of life, the heartaches that I may be going through, God loves me. And we see that so clearly displayed in Jesus. And that is what this section is proclaiming. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The love of God displayed for all to see. There's this concept uh, throughout the Bible that Jesus is the light of the world. And John in particular really highlights that. He really highlights the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. But we see it throughout Isaiah and through the prophets, um, all the way to the end in Revelation, where it says that Jesus is the bright morning star. He is our light and our life. And so here it is displayed so vividly in the gift of Jesus that God loves us. Those who think that God is, is not loving have shut their eyes to the truth. They're willfully ignorant about the fact that God loves them. It has been revealed. God has shown his love so clearly. It's crystal clear that all you have to do is look. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. John 15, 13. Paul said, but God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Billy Graham said this, God proved his love on the cross. When Christ hung and bled and died, it was God saying to the world, I love you, end quote. He has shown his love, crystal clear. And all we have to do is look and gaze. Gaze upon Jesus and let his love overshadow us. He has shown it so vividly through this one-of-a-kind Son of God. See, Jesus isn't just any old Son of God. You know, there's other sons of God, right? Other sons and daughters of God. You and I are sons and daughters of God. But this is the one-of-a-kind Son of God. How amazing the incarnation. It is really shocking. It's stunning how incredible it is that God became a human being. 
I mentioned earlier, we, we have a baby at home, and it's just astonishing to me that God would be willing to be a baby, let alone a human being. You know, I mean, it's one thing if you're like, yeah, I'll go ahead and go down there and be a human, right? You're God, and I'll just be a grown man, right? And I'll walk around and not mess myself and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Like, it'll be fine, right? And I'll probably make myself look good, too. Like, I'll be big and strong and fearsome looking and, you know, that's what I would do if I were God, right? If I was going to become a human being, I would definitely not do it the way Jesus did it, right? He became a baby. Just blows my mind. A baby. They whine and cry and poop a lot. I mean, it's, I mean, eat, sleep, and poop. That's like, that's what babies do, right? And that's what he chose to become. He humbled himself and became one of us. It's just absolutely astonishing. This one-of-a-kind son, God in the flesh. J.I. Packer says this, The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to walk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation, end quote. It truly is amazing that God was willing to do that. 100% God, 100% man. And why? Why did he have to do that? Why did God become a human? Well, so he could be the perfect mediator and sacrifice for our sins. He is both our high priest who mediates for us between us and the Father, and he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that could not happen if he wasn't a human being, God in the flesh. It's just amazing. So incredible, the incarnation. Then verse 17. What? No, I missed something that I want to share. The quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this. It's about how people tend to think quite highly of themselves sometimes as Christians because God became a human being. And he points out that the incarnation itself actually shows the opposite. Here's what he says. Non-Christians seem to think that the incarnation implies some particular merit or excellence in humanity. But of course it implies just the reverse. A particular demerit or depravity. No creature that de deserves redemption would need to be redeemed. That they are whole, the ones that are whole, do not need a physician. Christ died for men precisely because men are not worth dying for to make them worth it, end quote. I love C.S. Lewis. He has such an eloquent way of putting the most complicated things. Verse 17. So instead of condemning us, which is what God perfectly could have done, by the way, he, instead of simply judging us for our evil, he came to save us instead. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The just punishment for sin is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we rightly deserve. That's justice. And so what was God to do in order to both be loving and merciful and gracious and just? There was only one solution. And that solution is Jesus. And that's why he was promised from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God promised Adam and Eve that their seed would one day crush Satan. And then that is carried on to the promise to Abraham that one day his seed will bless the entire world. And then that's carried on even further to the line of Judah and the promised ruler who would reign forever and ever. And here it comes true in Jesus. This is why we celebrate Christmas is because of how amazing this is. The just punishment for sin is death, but instead God became a human being. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead and now, the second half of that verse, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus saves us single-handedly. He doesn't need or want your help. Did you know that? He's not looking for you to assist. He's like a lifeguard, and you're drowning, and he's got it. And... If you know anything about swimmers that try to assist in their own saving, um, that isn't usually received very well. And sometimes they will physically harm the person they're saving in order to get them safely to shore. <laughs> if Jesus doesn't need or want your help, he saves people single-handedly. A.W. Tozier says this, people have faith in faith. You know, we get all caught up on thinking about how faithful we are, right? That's what he's talking about here. People have faith and faith and largely forget that our confidence is not in the power of faith, but in the person and work of the Savior, Jesus Christ, end quote. See, this is really good news. You are not saved based on your faithfulness. You are saved based on Christ's faithfulness on his goodness, on his life. That's how you're saved. He saves you single-handedly. Think about the thief on the cross. He had no time to do anything for the Lord. No time to be faithful. No time to prove himself. And what did he do? He simply said, I trust in the personal work of this man hanging next to me right now, Jesus Christ. I trust him. I trust his word. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He did nothing to earn that. He was never baptized. He hadn't learned any church doctrines. Hadn't joined any home groups. 
He just trusted the word of the Lord. Alistair Begg, if you guys have ever heard of him, he's a pretty awesome preacher, uh, Scottish fellow. He says this about faith. Faith is not a soft opinion offered to people who need a crutch to get through the rest of their lives. Faith is the supernatural activity of God whereby he opens blind eyes, unstops deaf ears, and a man or a woman says, I see it now. I get it now. I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to trust in Jesus. End quote. That's the miracle of faith. It is completely a work of God. The mere fact that you are sitting here, Christian friend, and that you have hope in Jesus is a miracle in itself. God saves you single-handedly. Alistair Beck gave a sermon in which he talked about the thief on the cross, and he, he gave this little illustration of what it must have been like for him to show up in heaven and, and for the angels to be questioning him about how it was that he found his way there, having done nothing for the Lord. And after quizzing him about a great many different things, the man said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. I get choked up about that every time I see it. Like, it's so amazing. He did it all. Just incredible. Verses 18 through 21. You see, those who love darkness, they stand in condemnation. They stand in judgment. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So here in this last part, we see that to some, the incarnation is not good news at all. And they stand in judgment. They have chosen not to believe in the name of Jesus. The light has come and they have no excuse they hate the light because their works are evil. You know, God uses light to expose our sin. And everybody in this room has experienced that wonderful experience <laughs> of having your sins exposed, brought into the light. Nobody likes that experience. Nobody. It's not a fun thing, but when when God does it, he does it for a purpose. It isn't so that you can be humiliated. It's so you can be restored and redeemed. It's so that you can understand the depths of your, your sinfulness so that you may 
receive and cherish the depths of his love and his grace and his mercy. See, the light is really, really good because it shines and reveals what is true. It shows the bad from the good. And we're able to see it clearly. And he does it in order to heal us from those very sins. The more we understand the depths of God's love for us, the more we will love him and hate evil. And that is why it is so important for us to understand just how sinful we really are. It is a crucial point, I believe, in a believer's life where they come to the realization that they are a terrible person without Jesus. I remember when I realized that. You know, for a while... You're in Christ and you're all excited and the Holy Spirit's doing a work in you and you're like, ah, pretty good person, you know? I don't, I don't really do that many bad things anymore. Pretty awesome. No wonder God loves me, you know? And you kind of get this thought about it and you get kind of snobby even. You don't even realize you're doing it. And then God will humble you. He'll humble you and he'll, you'll see I am not nearly as good as I thought I was. And that is a great place to be. It's a great place to be to realize I am not worthy of God's love and yet he loves me anyway. His love is never ending. It is as deep as the ocean, as high as heaven. And it never ever is going to stop. So that's an incredible thing. John Piper my favorite author, he says this, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring everything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel, end quote. So Christian friend, my hope tonight is that you will lean into at a deeper level what it means to let God's light overshadow you and to rejoice in the treasure that is Jesus Christ. That he would be everything to you. Within that, let's go to chapter 1 of John's gospel, and I want to look at verses 9 through 13. where he speaks of the true light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In verses 9 through 11, we see that Jesus is the light of humanity. He is the true light who gives light to all people, not just the Jews, everyone. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The word that's translated true here is Aletheus, and it means real or genuine or authentic. He is the real light. There are all kinds of false lights in this world, all kinds of false truth. He's the real deal. He's the actual source of life itself, and that's what it gets into where it says that the world was made through him. He's not only the truth that defines reality, but he's the source of life itself. And he was rejected. Rejected by humanity as a whole. Rejected by both the Jews and humanity at large. He came to his own. His own rejected him. He wasn't what we expected, but he's exactly what we need. Jesus is referred to in John's gospel as the word. And a lot of people find that strange. It had a lot to do with kind of the Greek way of thinking, logos, being kind of the, the, the essence of what you think, right? And it kind of defines what is real. And that's what's meant here. But it's interesting that how did God create? With a word. God said, let there be light. And there was light. He just spoke a word. And light existed. And I don't know if you've caught it before, but that was before the sun was created. And there was light. Well, who was that? What light was shining in the darkness? That's John's point here. It's Jesus. And so thus, the word of God is the light of humanity. The source of all life and all truth he is the light and life of men. That's what he says in verses 4 through 5. Two of the coolest verses in the entire Bible. It sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings. It's like so awesome. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Those two verses are on my mother-in-law's gravestone. Amazing verses. So powerful and true. 
But he was rejected, even though he was the light and life of men. He was rejected. And then verses 12 through 13, we see that who the true children of God are. Receive, believe, and become. That's the sequence that it has there. Receive, believe, and become. Lambano means to take or receive. And that's what you have to do, Christian friend. In order to have the light of life, you have to take it. It's a free gift. It's just being offered to you. Jesus is right there saying, take. And that's what you have to do. You have to receive it. You have to take it. And once you receive Jesus by accepting the amazing free gift of righteousness and adoption into God's family, well then, you enter into belief. Pistuo means to trust. To put your full weight down on who Jesus is, the Word of God become flesh. To accept and acknowledge all the things that he says about himself. Everything that has been revealed through his word. And to say, I believe. I'm going to stake my life on it. I'm going to put my full weight down on Jesus. And I'm going to trust in him. That's what it means to believe. In the name of Jesus. And who he is and what he did. And what he's going to do. And then become. Ginomai, it literally means to become. In the Greek, or to create or to birth. And all of those ideas are appropriate here. Because that is what happens. Is supernaturally, you are reborn as a child of God. By receiving and believing. You become a child of God. Not by natural means, he says. Not by your own will and might, but by the power of God. And so I want to close this evening mentioning three things about the light. As we are honing in on Christmas Day. Like I mentioned before, it's easy for this not to be a very joyful time of year. There's a lot of people that struggle during this time of year because our world tells us it's supposed to look a certain way. Everyone that you love is supposed to be around the tree, right? Everyone's supposed to have really nice, beautiful things to open on Christmas Day. And this is what our culture tells us that Christmas is all about. And even though we know better, we can easily fall into that. I'm no stranger to falling into that. Life is not the way that it should be a lot of the time. And the older you are, the more that's true. The more heartaches have happened, the, whether people have passed away and are no longer there, or maybe relationships are broken at the moment, and so they're estranged and, and so they're not there. 
Or maybe you don't have all the things that the world says you're supposed to have. And you feel sad about that. Well, my encouragement to all of us is that we would focus in on what the true meaning of Christmas is about. The light of the world. And that we would let that bring us peace, joy, and contentment. So love the light more than the darkness and you will have peace. That's the first thing I want you to know. Love the light more than the darkness and you will have peace. Jesus is the light that brings peace to our soul. He is the one who brings us peace with God. The most important thing that you can possess is peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. And this only happens through Jesus. In Romans 5.1 it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the angels sang in Luke's gospel and his account of the birth of Jesus. This is why they were singing. They sang, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those in whom he is well pleased. Well, how do you become one in whom he is well pleased? By trusting in Jesus. And then you will have real peace, peace that passes all understanding, peace that comforts you in the midst of the worst that life has to offer. Because you know it's going to be okay. Even though it's not currently okay. And that's the amazing beauty of this peace is that you can be absolutely heartbroken and crushed and still have peace. That's what you have when you love the light more than the darkness is this incredible peace. J.I. Packer said, to know God's love is indeed heaven on earth. This is why Jesus is the greatest gift ever given. He should be our deepest pleasure and our highest treasure. John Piper says, when God is our deepest pleasure, we display him as our highest pleasure, end quote. I love John Piper. <laughs> he, he talks all the time about the importance of loving Jesus and treasuring him. And that is so important for us as Christians to truly desire him more than we desire anything else. The second thing about the light I wanted to mention is that we need to walk in the light instead of the darkness and you will have joy. Walk in the darkness or walk in the lightness instead of the darkness and you will have joy. There is no better feeling than walking in the light of Jesus. None. The world tries to tell us all the time that if we walk in the darkness that we will be joyful. And anyone who's experienced that for any length of time knows that that's not true. It just brings pain and regret. But when we walk in the light of Jesus, there is joy that we never knew existed. And it's really unfortunate how we forget that. 
And we get tempted by, by sin and by the darkness. And we think, oh, well, that's going to make me happy. No, it won't. Joy is found in one place, and his name is Jesus. This is why the Apostle Paul exhorts us to walk in the light. He says, We exhort each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. First lesson. First Thessalonians 2.12. John Piper says this. He says, God is not a killjoy. He just opposes what kills joy. End quote. We celebrate the incarnation because it made possible the resurrection. That's why we celebrate Christmas. It's because it made everything that Jesus did possible. J.R.R. Tolkien said this, the resurrection is the catastrophe of the story of the incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy. And if you're like me and you had no idea what catastrophe means, um, this is what that means. It means a sudden and favorable result or event in a story. This amazing thing that you didn't see coming, that you had no idea, and you're like, wow, that's awesome. It begins and ends with joy. And lastly, treasure the light more than life and you will have contentment. Treasure the light more than life, and you will have contentment. In order to treasure Jesus, you have to love him with all that you are. This is why Jesus told us that our first priority is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the number one thing that we're to do. And the reason for that is because that is where your source of peace, joy, and contentment come from, is by loving God more than anything else. John Piper says, loving God with all your mind means that our thinking is wholly engaged to do all it can to awaken and express the heartfelt Fullness of treasuring God above all things. End quote. This is what we should strive to do is to truly treasure God above all things and to have everything in our life aiming towards that goal. I am, like any of you, I am convicted about this. I don't do that to the fullest extent, and I, I want to. I want everything in my life to be aiming towards that goal of treasuring Jesus. This is why Jesus said that where our treasure is, our heart will be also. In Matthew 6, 21, 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. St. Augustine says this about that. Where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. And where your treasure, there is your heart. And where your heart, there is your happiness. End quote. And so it's a good way to think about it. What brings you pleasure? Where are your priorities? What do you treasure? Where, where is your energy being put? What's important to you? What do you love? And when those answers come back and it's not Jesus, and it's true for all of us, then you go, okay, how can I change that? How can I redirect my affections? How can I truly make Jesus my treasure? The thing and the person that matters more to me than anything else. Jesus is truly our treasure when we glorify him in all of life's circumstances. That's how you know that he's really your treasure. And this is only possible when we know that God loves us because he proved it in Jesus. And that means that even when life is not the way that you wish it was, you still rest in the love and the sovereignty of God. John Piper said, we embrace the hand we've been dealt because we know the dealer and he never deals badly. End quote. Now, you can only believe that if you believe in the character of Jesus. And so I encourage you, trust Trust the love of God that's been clearly displayed through the light of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his imminent return. That is where our hope is, and that's how we know that God loves us more deeply and more completely than we can possibly imagine. And that if your Christmas isn't looking the way that you wished it did, I want you to think of that. I want you to rest in the hope that you have in Jesus and the, and the love and the gift that you have in him. And that even though life is hard, even though there are things that are not the way that they ought to be, it's good. It's really good. I'll end with my absolute favorite quote from John Piper. <laughs> God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And that has become kind of like a life motto for me that I constantly try to remind myself of. Every single one of us in this room I know wants to glorify God. And it's not rocket science. You just have to love him more than you love yourself. And you will do that. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that you would 
bring us into a deep abiding love for you, that you would reveal yourself to us personally and intimately, that your love and your grace and your mercy would wash over us and that we would know your love, that we would experience it and feel it. It wouldn't just be head knowledge, but it would be heart knowledge. And that we would go forth in life living in that joy, that peace, that contentment. That you are the light in life of men. That you have shone in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. And we belong to you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.